Most of us know deep down that we need to get our estate plans together or update the ones that we have. And somehow it's just so easy not to get around to it. If you're feeling intimidated by estate planning, you're not alone. If the whole topic makes you feel overwhelmed, listen up. I'm Liza Hanks, and I've spent more than 20 years as an estate planning attorney. And I know for certain that you have enough information, enough education, and enough financial savvy to do what needs to be done. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies you need to know to make better legal decisions and take action to protect your loved ones and yourself. Don't be intimidated by lawyers ever again. Join us for Women in Wills. And I ask people when I'm doing presentations, surely you've made plans for your stuff. Think about what else you could do on the way out. It's beyond just saying, I want so-and-so to get this much money and I want so-and-so to have that thing. Do you want science? to be able to advance because of a gift that you are giving. That's Tish Hevel, the CEO of the Brain Donor Project, a nonprofit she created to support the work of the Neurobiobank of the National Institutes of Health. When her own father died of dementia and wanted to donate his brain to science, the family discovered that actually it was pretty difficult to do. So they decided to do something about it, and the Brain Donor Project was born. Its mission is simple. They want to make it easy for all of us to donate our precious brain tissue upon death for use in basic research. As you'll hear in this amazing conversation, brain donation is simple, it's free, and it's really important. Please join me for this conversation with Tish. Welcome to the Women in Law podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. Why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners and talk a little bit about what you're doing and especially how it got started. That's such a beautiful story. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me. So my name is Tish Hevel, and I founded a not-for-profit called the Brain Donor Project. And we developed it to exclusively support the brain banks of the NIH. The timing was kind of clutch. The NIH had just gotten into the brain banking business in 2014, and they did it because All the brain banks up until then were sort of, I'll say they were proprietarily held. They were housed at teaching hospitals or medical schools. And you sort of had to have an in there to be able to get your hands on the tissue if you're a neuroscientist. And all the scientists agree that's not the best way to to run a rodeo, that they got to be able to have better access to the tissue to complete their studies. So the NIH decided, let's do it ourselves. And they contracted with six brain banks around the country to retrieve and store and prepare for lab use this most precious of resources. And so we came along at really the right time because they had just gotten that structure underway. It's called the Neurobiobank, and they just gotten around to doing the public awareness of it. So we came along and said, can we help you? And they said, yeah. And so we launched the Brain Donor Project to be able to raise awareness of the critical need for people to donate their brains when they die and to simplify the process of becoming a brain donor. And thanks for asking about my dad. I love to talk about him. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Talk about your dad. Oh, it's so good to talk about my dad. Anyway, he diagnosed with Lewy body's dementia. And we didn't know what that was at the time, even though it's like the second most common dementia. So coming across the idea of brain donation, and I think 
time researchers thought they might be onto something. So we explored that a little further. And in those days, it was very complicated. The bank was brand new. We started talking about it a lot. And people were like, oh, that's so cool. How do I do it? And I'd be like, eh, I'm not going to help. Kind of complicated, but let me see if I can get it simplified and then I'll help you. So our part of it came to be. So great about this is the neurobiobank is one of the greatest resources to science, especially in terms of brain health, that is imaginable. So they put together this structure that holds thousands and thousands of kinds of brain tissue. So now neuroscientists all over the world can go to the Neurobiobank's website, which is at neurobiobank.nih.gov, kind of has two parts. One part is like, you want to be a brain donor? That's great. We need you really bad. And then it links to our website to get you started on the process. The other side of it for scientists is so cool because you open a password protected account, some details about your study, and then you look at all the different kinds of supplies of brain tissue they have. So if you're doing a study on, say, Parkinson's disease, and you need certain kinds of brain tissues of X-year-old people, and there's all kinds of data in the portal. So scientists can go in there, find what they need, do a request online, get an answer in 24 hours, and pay for the shipping. And that's it. So speaking of different kinds of brains, I think some people think that only people with pathology should donate their brains. I know that isn't true because I heard you on NPR, but it was surprising to me to think that just average healthy people, although as I was writing my notes, I thought normal brain, I had to put that in quotes, right? Because like, (laughs) what's a normal brain? Right. People that aren't sick with these diseases can be helpful as well. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, happy to, because there's a giant need for that, Liza. That's probably the most important issue today. And the reason for that is, as you can imagine, healthy control brains, non-disease brains are needed in every single study for the purpose of comparisons. And they have to be age matched to the brains that are affected that are in the study. So that's one part. And there's not enough of them to go around. And many of the studies that were driven by certain diseases and things like that, they feel like they're not really funded to get control. So they got to find them someplace else. They feel like their goal is to get those diseases. So that's a difficulty with control brains. The other thing that's really critical is the brain initiative, which is the NIH this big multi-collaborative study of how the brain works and tools to understand it better is entering a phase where they're going to be doing what they refer to as an atlasing of every single cell of the brain. And so they're going to need significant amounts of only controls, only controls for this. And they must cross every single demographic there is. So huge, huge need for it. And here's what keeps me up at night about that. Say you're somebody who's never really heard about brain donation before. And there's people, I mean, it's kind of a new thing, right? There are medical people. And I always have to say to them, it's okay. It's not like you're living under a rock. This is kind of a new thing. But say your loved one dies and to be a controlled brain, generally speaking, you're dying 
unexpectedly. It's not a neurologic condition. It might be from another disease or it could be from an accident. And if the first time you're learning about brain donation is when medical people are coming up to you and asking you to consent to donate your loved one's brain because they need it for neuroscience research and you haven't wrapped your arms around the fact that they're gone yet, it's almost too traumatic of an ask. I'm a planner. I'm an estate planning attorney and planning is a huge part of meeting these really difficult times in our lives with some sense of agency. And so I totally understand what you're saying. And I understand that what's important is that you talk to your family about this long time before death so that they understand that should this happen to you, this is something that you would want to have happen. Is that correct? Is that how you would describe it? That that is absolutely correct. And the family is so critical in the equation. What's really important is that someone register in advance. That way, the paperwork is in place. And part of that paperwork is that you choose a couple of people in your family to execute this wish. And all it really means is they got to make a phone call when you pass. And yes, you have to plan for this one, unfortunately. Let's talk for a minute about the difference between being an organ donor and being a brain donor, because... I practice in California and there people register with the DMV as organ donors and they get a little pink dot on their license. But that's not the same as brain donation, right? It is not. In fact, that's the largest misconception we face. People assume that they got the thing marked on their driver's license and they're good to go. And they do not recover brains as part of organ donation. It is not a thing. Um, There's a bunch of reasons why. Obviously, we're not transplanting them. This is for research. It's a different kind of recovery compared to the other things they take, organ procurement organizations. And so you have to make separate arrangements. But it's gotten really simple to do that now. And that's kind of how we come in. So our website is braindonorproject.org. You can go there, learn about brain donation. When you're ready, there's a pre-registration button on the upper right-hand corner. It says brain pre-registration. And that takes you to a pretty simple online form. First question is, are you doing this on behalf of yourself or someone else? And the second question is something to the effect of, are we in a hurry? And then it's just contact information and a diagnosis. Based on that, we make a determination as to which of the brain banks is most appropriate for that person. And then we connect them to that brain bank. So that's what gets all the paperwork started. Okay. So if I wanted to be a brain donor, I would pre-register with the Brain Donor Project, and I will put links to all of this in the show notes as well. But then if I'm a family member of somebody who, so say my kids, right? And I die and I, they know I want to be a brain donor. So like, just what happens, you know, did scary brain people come into the place where I died and suck out my brains? I don't think so. But I think there's a lot of fear around a lot of this. And so I think that talking about it realistically can help address those fears. I think you're absolutely right. But let's say, you know, my beloved parent has passed away. I know they want to be a brain donor and say they passed away at home in hospice care. So what would happen in that scenario? It's remarkably well thought out. So the brain bank will 
provide you with some instructions upon registration of what to do. But in a nutshell, here's what it looks like. The brain bank wants to be notified super quickly upon death. Ideally, they'd like to get a phone call from the family within the hour. If a person is in a, a hospice setting and the hospice people call, that's fine. But they do have to get a final consent from a family member over the phone. They don't have to be the POA or anything, just an ex of kin person. Then the brain bank makes arrangements for the body to be moved someplace local. Oftentimes, more often than not, the procedure is done at the family's funeral home. They're constantly permitting that now. It's not a big deal to many of them. So bodies move someplace local. If it's not the funeral home, the brain bank identifies another medical or mortuary facility. They get the body moved there. The brain bank has a network of pathologists and recovery specialists around the country. So they send one of those people there. That's the scary brain people you were talking about. They're not scary. And they remove the brain through the back of the head. So it's not disfiguring and an open casket is still very much an option. That's uh, one of the reasons we partner with the National Funeral Directors Association, because, you know, if we can still do that, it's very important to them to have a person still be eligible for an open casket. So the pathologist person removes the brain, through the back of the head, ships it to the brain bank. And at that point, then the body is released to the family to proceed with whatever funeral or cremation plans have been made. So it doesn't slow things down? It doesn't slow things down at all. And the other thing is there's no additional cost to the family to do this. There are some organizations out there that'll help you find a pathologist, but then you pay his or her fee and that can run into the thousands. But the NIH knows this tissue is so precious and wants to make it so available that they reimburse everybody along the way. And there's another big benefit to families. If the family requests it of the brain bank, the brain bank will provide, also at no charge, a copy of a very important report that's called a summary of neuropathological findings. And basically, that's autopsy information on the brain. Now, in the case of many neurodegenerative diseases, ALS, Parkinson's, all the dementias, this is the most definitive diagnosis you're going to get. So, for example, my dad was diagnosed with Lewy bodies, but that's really just a really, really well-educated guess until he passes and they look through the brain and the type of protein they find determines what the source of his dementia was. They explain to you if that protein is present, that's the hallmark of Lewy bodies dementia. So we know we know what it was and Once we all know a little bit more about these diseases, about the inheritability of them, and this information is going to be very valuable to family members down the road. That's a real gift. And if I were somebody who wanted to donate my body to science, you know, for uh, educational purposes, that's also different from brain donation, right? It is. And can you talk a little bit about that and how that would work in a family? Sure, sure. We actually did it for my dad. I can speak to It's a little bit tricky. So the first thing you need to do is donate your brain. So do that first. And then the second thing is you need to find an anatomical body donation program in your part of the world because they don't transport bodies around for this. So it has to be in your part of the world that will accept the body once the brain has been removed for neuroscience research elsewhere. This is the weird part. Some do, some don't. 
I don't see the logic in that. It's not just my bias talking medical education and, you know, allied medical fields. Some people think it's important for students to understand what it's like to touch a brain and that sort of thing. But removing it and using it for neuroscience is the most important thing. So anyway, you sign up with when you find one, and hopefully you do. I don't know if it's in every market that that is doable. I really don't. We were able to do it in northern Cincinnati, and so we feel very fortunate about that. The way it works then is you register with both programs and you share contact information for the brain bank with the body donation program and vice versa. And so those two entities coordinate everything at a time when you're not going to feel like getting in the middle of it anyway. So we called him, told him what happened. My dad died at home. They came. They took his body to the body donation place to that program. Pathologist went there, removed the brain, shipped it to the brain bank, and then they kept his body there for the anatomical program. So we felt really good. We felt like my dad was like giving away everything he had that worked so well for him. You know what I mean? He was a healthy guy and a smart guy and a good guy. He would have loved to have known that every cell had a use. Well, what I love about that is, and one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast is that I think so often we reduce our legacy to money and we forget all the beautiful things that we can leave behind to people, you know, memories, experiences, and now tissue and body parts that could help scientists solve some of these really difficult diseases that are causing so much degeneration and pain. And so I think it's such an altruistic thing to do. You know what, Liza? It is. And that's why so many people do it. They say, you know what, if I can have a hand in a future family not having to go through what we had to go through, because they're going to be able to learn from this, take it, take it. They would want you to take it and learn from it. So that's kind of cool that people are just willing to be so generous with the key part. Yeah, the key part. And once a brain is taken to one of these neurobiobanks, talk a little bit about how it's made available to researchers, because I think if you don't know anything about this, you might think, well, one research project can use this brain. But in fact, that's not the case, right? Not at all. I can only talk a little bit about this because I'm not a scientist. So I'll tell you what I know. What they do with the brain when they get it, first of all, they put it through all kinds of assessments because that report I was telling you about identifies any diagnoses in the brain. It tells the stage of the disease, the regions of the brain that were impacted, and what exactly was going on, anything. So a lot of people who die thinking, I have a healthy brain, I have a neurologically considered a control. You might not be by the time you die. And so a lot of that changes. But anyway, they assess the heck out of it. Half of it is frozen and the other half is what they call fixed in formalin or formalin-like substance that's, you know, chemically preserved. And then they cut slices so that they can get tissue from the identified places. And it's interesting that you say that because Brains can be used in lots and lots and lots of studies. People have asked, what's the shelf life, for example, of a brain that's been frozen? And we don't know yet. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, there's no real expiration date. There are brains that were frozen back in like the 50s and 60s when they started first playing with brain bacteria, and they are still used. So no shelf life. A control brain can be used in dozens and dozens and dozens, you know, of different areas of the brain. So, yeah, it's not just one study. They are really valuable and we can use a lot of it. 
But once you donate the brain, you don't get to find out all the different places it's being used, right? No, you don't get to do that because it goes so many places and that would require a lot of lot of reporting. You do get to find out what was going on with the one that you donated. But yeah, once it, it's out there, it just gets used a lot. What you can do is go to the NeuroBioBank's website and scientists who use the tissue publish their studies and their findings on that site. I'll go back to Parkinson's. That seems to be the most reported disease we are finding from people who pre-register right now. We kind of go through phases with things, but Parkinson's, a lot of people are reporting Parkinson's disease. So at least you know that they're learning things about Parkinson's and they're learning them because they're using donated tissue. So you have contributed to that whether you know it or not. Are you seeing that more and more people are interested in doing this or are you seeing a lot of resistance to it? No. You know, my experience has been that once people know about the critical need for this, any objections they may have had just fall away or they don't really have objections. They just didn't know they had to do stuff to make it happen. Part of that is we talked about organ donation. You know, people weren't aware that the brain donation is separate from organ donation. People also weren't aware that brain donation is separate from anatomical donation. People aren't aware that it's not disfiguring. People aren't aware that it's not going to cost their family anything. People aren't aware that control brains are as critically needed. And people aren't aware that their family can find out what was going on with them after they're gone. So those are really key things that, that folks need to be educated about. But the other side is, as a society... Our attitudes about death are really changing. I saw a stat not long ago, and it was from a study done by the Funeral Directors Association, that 70 to 75% of people by 2025, which is like tomorrow, are going to elect to be cremated rather than have a funeral. That's a big number. And I think what that says is our attitudes about what happens to us when we're gone have become a little more pragmatic maybe a little more realistic. And that's a great thing to see. Or maybe it's like you say, that people are starting to plan more and say, I I know what I want to do when I'm gone. I know I don't want this kind of a thing. I know I want to be cremated. And now you can say, I know what I want done with my parts too. So that's part of it. I know it's important to me and many people in this kind of work that Contemplating your own death can be a really powerful and life-affirming thing too. And it's going to happen to all of us. You know, there's a hundred percent chance that you'll die, but you have a lot of agency over how it happens and what happens after that. This is, I think, a beautiful conversation about something that, frankly, I, I wasn't that aware of. And I think many people still aren't that aware of. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. And was there something that I didn't ask you that you wished I had? No, but there's something. one more thing I'd like to say, and that is that another benefit beyond the report is that the family feels a remarkable sense of solace and comfort in having done this. I know we did, and I hear that from like so many people who's like, you know, in the face of a great loss that not much can mitigate, if you have a great loss, you're having a great loss. But knowing that you have done something to advance science as a part of this does make it just a little easier to swallow. And everybody says that, whether their loved one was sick or not. I call this the most precious gift that you can give. And I ask people when I'm doing presentations, just what you're doing, Liza, think about your legacy. 
Surely you've made plans for your stuff. But think about what else you could do on the way out that's beyond just saying, I want so-and-so to get this much money and I want so-and-so to have that thing. Do you want science to be able to advance because of a gift that you are giving? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And I think it's great, the work you're doing. And I really, really am glad that you were able to talk to me today. I, I really am. I'm so glad you invited me. Thank you, Liza. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Women and Wills. To find out more about today's guest and to read the show notes for this one, go to womenandwills.com slash listen. To find out more about the Women and Wills project in general and about my new series of online courses, you'll find that information at womenandwills.com too. And if you'd like to ask a question on the podcast, send me a voice memo or an email to questions at womenandwills.com. Make sure to tell me your name and where you're writing from, and you might hear your question on the show. And please remember, the information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.